Father, thank you for this morning and thank you for the, the great opportunity that we have to come together and to be united in Christ and to enjoy worshiping together the risen Savior who promises to save all who trust in him. And we're grateful to share that and have that in common, even though we are so different in so many other ways. And we're grateful to hear from your word so that we might understand you better, understand your will and purposes better, so that we might understand the riches of our salvation better, so that we might in turn worship you in a way that would honor you. We're also glad that we leave here more equipped to be those who would be uh, spokesmen and spokeswomen for you and for your honor and for your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning we're going to be talking about confidence, and we're going to be talking about confidence in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, and we're going to talk about confidence. Confidence is a strange thing. Without any confidence, people are paralyzed. When confidence is misplaced, people are let down or they're deceived. When it is appropriately placed, confidence that is, it is exceptionally powerful. And for the Apostle Paul and for us, I hope by extension, it can and should be exceptionally powerful. We should have confidence and our confidence, if it's rightly placed, should be exceptionally powerful, motivating, strengthening, encouraging, and we're going to talk about that kind of confidence this morning in 2 Corinthians. We're going to look at chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. We're going to read that right now ahead of time, and you're going to hear confident words like this, always, that's a confidence word, everywhere, that's a confidence word, are That's a confidence word. So if you'd follow along with me as we read this, then we'll take a closer look. The Apostle Paul writes, When I came to Troas, this is verse 12 of chapter 2, 2 Corinthians. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest, because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. And now we're going to take a closer look. Okay? So if you want to divide it up, no fancy outline today. Um, sorry if you feel cheated. But if you want to divide it up, the opening two verses, verses uh, 12 and 13, stress concern for the church. He's concerned for the church, which is something he's criticized for because they criticize him for not being concerned for the church. So that's the opening two verses. And then secondly, and we're going to look at 14 to 17, confidence in Christ. Confidence in Christ. And we'll really focus there. Now, if you weren't here last week, disregard what I'm about to say. But I was informed that last week my sermon was so bad that I forgot point number four. 
So, if you're one of those people, because some of you came to me and said, I can't even hardly sleep without having that fourth point in my notes. Here's point four from last week. It was, and I, I, I confess my sin and repent with sackcloth and ashes. Um, point number four was the need to forgive the repentant. The need to forgive the repentant, and that's chapter 2, verses 5 to 11. We covered the content. And so I'm repentant and you need to forgive me. So maybe it's providential. (laughs) Opening two verses, concern for the church. Paul says in verse 12, when I came to Troas, that would be in modern day Turkey, all the way to the west, on the Aegean Sea, when I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, Even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. Macedonia, again, he's moving, he decides to leave and move counterclockwise around the Aegean Sea. Okay, so he's going to move up toward Philippi. He's going to move up toward Thessalonica, Berea. And what he's doing is he's making his way back around the Aegean Sea, back to Corinth. Okay, so I I, I went to Troas, great gospel ministry opportunities, because that's what the Apostle Paul does, is preach the gospel, the good news of salvation in Christ. And there there was an open door, there was opportunity, and yet I didn't stay there because I was supposed to meet Titus, Titus who had delivered the Corinthian letter. I needed to have an update. I needed to hear about you because of this problem in your church, because of the conflicts, because of the compromising, because you're letting in the false teachers. And I I care about you so much. This is what he's saying. I care about you so much that when Titus wasn't there in Troas, I knew that there was a problem. And so instead of enjoying good, fruitful gospel ministry, I care so much about the church. Even those fake or super apostles say, I don't care. I cared. I care so much that I didn't stay where I wanted to stay. I started making my way back toward you. So, again, the reason it's relevant is because his character is being attacked. He's uncaring. He's unkind. He's just trying to make a name for himself, or however they can lob bombs at him to undermine him and his gospel. He's giving us a historical note here, saying, "No, no, I care so much that that I, that I left where I wanted to be." Now let's move on. Now let's move on to the next point of emphasis. Oh, you could jot down a cross-reference. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 28 is a good one. He'll get into it later. There is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all of the churches. I really, really do care, even though they say I don't care. Questioning motives is satanic, by the way. And remember earlier he talked about Satan just in our last text. Okay, let's move on. Now for the spiritual perspective, the, the, he's going to, verses 14 to 17 is the heart, of the heart of the matter, the heart of gospel ministry. In many ways, people say this is the crux of the whole letter, if you will, stated like it was in chapter 1. Confidence in Christ. Here we go, verse 14. But thanks be to God. Notice the contrast first. How in the world can you say, I did what I didn't want to do circumstantially. I wanted to stay at Troas, but I couldn't stay in Troas. But my response is, the next thing out of my mouth is, thanks be to God. 
Well, you can say that when you have a theological perspective. You're, you're, you're trusting in Christ. You're trust, trusting in God's sovereignty and His goodness. And so no matter what happens in faithful gospel ministry, whether it's His or ours by extension, no matter what the circumstances are, no matter how bad the problems are, His perspective starts with, thanks be to God. I know better than to be mopey, dopey. I know better than to to be paralyzed by circumstances not going my way. Circumstances were open door. This is a great opportunity and I can't do it. I've got to do something else. So what's my response? He says, thanks be to God. And then then he's going to unpack for us the theology under it that, that upholds that kind of perspective. Because we would want to have that kind of perspective. When things don't go the way we want them to go, in gospel ministry or otherwise, how in the world can we say, thanks be to God. I'm going to praise God and thanks God. Thank, I'm going to thanks God for English. I'm going to thank God no matter what's happening. And then he gives some reasons. He gives a couple of important reasons how he can have that kind of demeanor, that kind of st- uh, perspective, the kind of perspective we would want to have. Firstly, He says in verse 14, who in Christ always, note note the confidence talk, always leads us in triumphal procession. I can be confident, he's saying, as a proclaimer of the good news about redemption and reconciliation in Christ because I know that God always leads us in Christ. He always leads us in triumphal procession. And in Christ is is one of those things I wish people would have taught me when I was first a Christian better than they did, or maybe it was just my fault, I wasn't paying attention. But regardless, to be in Christ means to be united to Christ. So so we, we oftentimes, I oftentimes, maybe to a fault because I didn't get it, and maybe some of you aren't getting it, so I figure I'm going to stress it. In Christ, united to Christ. Uh, the Bible teaches when you believe in Jesus, when you trust in Jesus, not in yourself, for you receive Christ and all of his benefits. So it's initial salvation, it's final salvation, it's spiritual growth, it's glorification, it's resurrection. All that Christ accomplished for you are yours in Christ, united to him, inseparable from him. So he's the perfect one and God is pleased with him, his father is pleased with him. And so if we're united to him, God is pleased with us. Because we're in Christ. He represents us. In Christ, in Christ, in Christ. I don't know how many times it's mentioned in the New Testament, but many, 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 many times it's a basic Christian belief. So let's make sure we own it. In, here's how I can thank God. Because in Christ, I'm united to Christ. God always, confidence word again, leads us in triumphal procession. I'm united to Christ. He's the victor. I'm preaching the message about Christ. Same thing he said regarding himself. And so I can have confidence that we are always victorious. We are the winners always and forever, no matter what. As Christ was raised from the dead, the Father pleased with the Son, we in one sense therefore can't go wrong if we're in Christ preaching Christ regardless of circumstances. This is bold. This, this, is, this is a great always kind of confidence. How do we know if we're doing it right? What if people don't like us? What if people reject us? What if it leads to no, no decisions? 
or whatever it is, confident he always leads us in victory, not because we're so special, so amazing, so gifted, but because we're in Christ, who is all in all. The triumphal procession. We don't use that kind of terminology, but we talk about parades. In the ancient Roman world, they, they, what would they do? If you're, you're a, a Roman general, you're, you're the victor, you're coming back, you're the leader, and so you have the triumphal procession. So everyone can see that you won the battle on behalf of your people. You have the captives. You defeated your enemies. You defeated your foes. We see, I mean, this is common ancient culture, not so common to us, represented on Roman arches, reliefs, coins, statues, medallions, paintings, cameos. We win the military campaign and we're triumphant. It's grand and great. Well, what happens when the Patriots win the Super Bowl? I think they won the last Super Bowl. Did they? Yeah. When When the Patriots win the Super Bowl... My, my, my brother and his family live in New England. And so I was there for one of the Patriots games and they had Patriots face tattoos for me, Patriots shirts, Patriots who, who knows what. They had everything. So, but my, my uh, nieces and nephews, they'll go to the parade, right? They're going to have the parade and they're going to make it a huge big deal, pomp and circumstance. Look at us, we won. They're going to have a victory celebration. They're going to have the victorious triumph for all to see that they beat the Rams. Didn't they play the Rams? Okay, I just wanted to make sure. Just checking. I'm a theologian. Um, but but in, in sports, it doesn't always work out that way. You can't say that if you're an athlete. Since we're speaking about football, Joe Montana, four-time Super Bowl winner, right? I just looked it up on the Internet, but... After I found the good quote, Joe Montana, confidence is a very fragile thing. That's a great quote. Confidence is a very fragile thing. And it is when it comes to sports. It is when it comes to life. It is when it comes to you fill in the blank, but it is most definitely not a fragile thing if you are in Christ. If you are in Christ, it is anything but fragile He always leads us in the victory procession, no matter what. That's why we tell people to trust in Him. That's why we proclaim that message instead of some other message, because we can't be confident in any other message. But we can be confident in that one. And I want you to be confident in that. I want this church to be confident in that. I want to be confident in that. We can't be confident about very many things, but we can be confident about that always leads us in the victory procession. He gives more rationale, so that's why he gives thanks to God, even though circumstances are not good. Secondly, he gives a little bit more rationale in verse 14, where he goes on to say, you can look there with me and see, and through us, us who are in Christ, right? Us who preach Christ, right? And through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him, of God, everywhere. 
So notice even there, there's a confidence where I don't have to doctor up the message for the Corinthians and then change the message for the Thessalonians and then change the message for this kind of person. He always leads us in victory everywhere we go because this is the message that everyone needs. And so we can have confidence and give thanks to God for this. It is a fragrant aroma. Spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. Think about the smell, right? It's it's some kind of wonderful smell. They they had terrible smells, wonderful smells. I have a relative who says the most expensive smell you'll ever smell is the new, what? The new car smell. We like us some new car smell in the 21st century, right? Yeah, it's pretty expensive. $30,000 later, you're hoodwinked and you're strapped with payments. Or your neighbor's barbecuing, right? You smell that grill. It's like, oh, this is glorious. So it's, it, he's using a positive fragrance. When we, when we do this, this is, this is pleasing. This is a great thing. Probably borrowed, could be borrowed from the, the Roman processions because of incense. Um, but also could be taken from the Old Testament world of the fragrant aroma because of the sacrifice. That's going to be more like your neighbor grilling, by the way, if you're in first century Jerusalem because of the animals. Meat, it's what's for dinner, right? (laughs) Smell, it's good. And and the Bible talks about God being pleased with the sacrifice of Christ. Just using the metaphor, using the image. The perfect sacrifice. If we're in Him and we're proclaiming Him, always and everywhere, that fragrant aroma that would go to God is one He's pleased with. Because we, how can we know this? Because he's pleased with his son. This is my son, he said from heaven, in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. So when we're preaching Christ, no matter what the response is, God is pleased with us preaching Christ. He's pleased with us because we're in Christ. And he's pleased with us because as we're in Christ, we're only preaching Christ. Because that's how anyone can find any hope. So again, this is a confidence builder regarding Jesus, regarding what we're called to do, what he was called to do, a fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. I want to take a moment to stress the knowledge of him. No small thing. When when we proclaim, when we herald, when we preach the truth about Jesus, we're telling the truth about God. The knowledge of God. And if you stop for a moment and realize that since the fall of humanity, the default mode of men and women, boys and girls, is not the true knowledge of God. Default mode for everyone is idolatry. We we create God in our own image according to our own likeness. Strangely enough, he looks a lot like me. Maybe a better version of me. We, we create a God who helps those who help themselves. Uh, we create a God who is definitely one who would vote according to my political party. Uh, we create a God that we can control. We create a God who's domesticated like our house pets. We create gods. Uh, John Calvin said the human heart is an idol factory. Romans chapter 1 talks about how we, we, it's, we foolishly speculate about God. 
We foolishly speculate about God. And I always put that in our day's terminology. To me, God is. I feel God is. To me, God is. I think, I feel foolish speculations. What we need is for God to break into our universe graciously but powerfully and give us revelation of Himself so that we can know that He's not any of those to me God is kinds of things. He's utterly different and distinct and He sends His Son into the world most preeminently, most highly, according to Hebrews chapter 1, so that we might know God. That God is utterly righteous. He has a law. He has a standard. And He's not pleased with you doing whatever you want to do. And, and you don't meet the standard because you're sinful. And so therefore you are under the fair condemnation of God. No hope in the world without Him. The New Testament says. Not even the Old. The New Testament. So we're all without excuse. So what do we need? If we can't bridge the gap between us and God, what we need is not a boost. What we need is for God to come here graciously because of His love, become one of us, then do everything right on our behalf, And then He pays for all of our wrongdoing on the cross. So there's atonement made. He's raised from the dead, proving that God is satisfied with what He's done. And He does that on behalf of everyone who would ever believe. This is counterintuitive. This is not natural religion. This is not natural knowledge of God. We always come to the wrong conclusions again and again and again. Biblical Christianity says, your only hope is in Christ. Who would invent a religion, by the way, that damns everyone? If I made a religion, I would at least have me at the top, right? It's counterintuitive to say it's by grace alone, through faith alone, on account of Christ alone, no glory for you, all glory for Him. What in the world? When we proclaim the truth about Jesus, we're spreading like a fragrant aroma the true knowledge of God everywhere. And if it's not true, by the way, this is like the height of arrogance. The Apostle Paul is accused of being arrogant. Especially in Corinth, where they have all kinds of gods and goddesses. But if it is true, the height of arrogance would be to say something else. Hope in Christ. Boldness, confidence in Christ. True knowledge of Him. I can't wait. We need to wait because otherwise we won't get done. But I want to go to other texts in 2 Corinthians that talk about the gospel. But we're going to save chapter 5 and chapter 3 for another day. But notice the always and the everywhere. That's why we thank God because we're victorious in Christ and always victorious in Christ. I've got to remember this because I I like to be liked. And I like my family to like me. I like my friends to like me. I like people in my community to like me. I like to be liked. I think that's normal and natural. I think it's a good thing, right? We're concerned about people who don't like to be liked. But we have to remember that our confidence has to be in 
what God has revealed so we can confidently, boldly tell everyone what they need with humility because we're not the ones who know everything. We're proclaiming Him. Because apart from this, I, I think I would probably do something else. Let's move on. Let's go to number, verse 15. Verse 15 says, For we, believers and promoters of the gospel, for we are the aroma of Christ. And I wrote in my margin, the perfect sacrifice. He's the perfect sacrifice and we're the aroma of Him to God. We're in Him. God is pleased with us. There's the image of the fragrant aroma to God, pleasing Him. Resurrection, vindication among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. That, that is quite the confidence. Proclaiming, people respond positively. God is pleased because I wasn't preaching myself. The Apostle Paul is going to say, I don't preach myself. Because some do. I don't preach myself, I preach Christ. So I know that God is, it's a metaphor, but if God had nostrils and he doesn't, he would be pleased with it. Because we're in Christ. We're telling the truth about Jesus. But he's also pleased even when I'm proclaiming the same message and people are rejecting it. And I don't want them to reject it. I want them to accept it. But if my confidence is in him and in the message and in the calling, I'm going to give the same message to everybody. Because Christians are not called to be politicians when we're in preaching mode. It's important for us to see. We proclaim Him. Confidence in that, confidence that God will use it. I just mentioned this, I'm going to mention it again in a little bit different way, but for, for us, again, parents, kids, grandparents, husbands and wives, it's natural and right, you're supposed to love your neighbor to, to be a people pleaser on a certain level. But one thing I struggle with is being a people pleaser maybe so far that I would want to compromise what I would say is true about salvation in Christ or belief. Or maybe I'm tempted to doctor up the message a a little bit. Tone it down, make it a little harder, easier, whichever is going to fit that person. And if I'm tempted to do that, I suspect maybe some of you are as well. The Apostle Paul is going to stick to the script because he knows that that's what's honoring to God and pleasing to God and he knows that that is the power of God into salvation to everyone who believes. But he can't convert them. He can't do it. I have to remember that. I think we have to remember that as a church as well. I hope we do. If our church gave off a smell, maybe it does. If our church spiritually gave off a smell. <laughs> would, it, would, it, would it smell like moralism? Would it smell like legalism? It's figurative, but the, the smell we would want to give off, the fragrant aroma that we would want to give, give off, that we would know would please God, is, is, is a, a gospel smell. Boasting not in ourselves, 
not trying to get a pound of flesh out of people, get them to behave, but we're, we're boasting in Jesus. That if you trust in Jesus, you will be forgiven and you'll be reconciled to God and that he's your only hope. That's the kind of smell we would want to have. Verse 16 says, To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. I think we can understand the gist of it, if we, even if it's puzzling. So he's talking about those who are perishing, those who are being saved. Death to death, life to life. The, the best New Testament scholar I could find giving us a, 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 um, an interpretive translation of this suggested this. A deadly stench that leads to death. A vitalizing fragrance that leads to life. Perhaps that's what's intended by from death to death and from life to life. I wouldn't die for that. But the idea would be to some they find the smell of the gospel offensive. They don't like it. But when that's the case, it's not because they're right. It's because it doesn't end well for that person. And to others, they smell the gospel, if you will, figuratively speaking, and it smells like life. And they come to believe and trust and have eternal life as a result. Seems to be what he's getting at here. Isn't it interesting? Same message, different kinds of people responding in different ways. I would add, at different times. But his confidence is not in himself and his ability to spin it a different way to convert everybody. His confidence is in sticking to the script because he knows it pleases God and it leads to life for those who would believe. It reminds me of 1 Corinthians where he talks about uh, to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Whereas in 1 Corinthians, what's happening is the church is wanting to doctor up the message to reach more Corinthians. And the Apostle Paul calls them in chapter 1 and chapter 2 to remember their own conversion. Remember, you, you weren't converted because of some doctored up deal. You were converted because of Jesus loves me, this I know for the Bible tells me so kind of stuff. You know what I mean. So why would you want to change it to reach more people when that's not what you were reached with? It doesn't make any sense. Then he asked the rhetorical question. How about verse 16? Are we on 16 halfway through, I think? Yes, we are. I don't want to leave any points out like last week. I might get fired. Verse 16 goes on to say, rhetorically, I think, who is sufficient for these things? Or some of your translations might say, who is worthy of these things? Who, who could be such a person to, to stand up and proclaim a message knowing that that message is what God uses to save people and it's also what God uses to offend people? Life to life, death to death. Uh, who is sufficient for these things? And I think the implied answer is nobody is sufficient for these things. No, no, one is, no human being should, should have such power. I think that's the first way we should respond to this. Who is sufficient? Who's worthy? Only someone who knows everything 
Only someone who's awesome and great and has lots of letters behind their name. When my, when my brother Mike was diagnosed with cancer, he, he did as much research as he could and talked to as many doctors as he could. Who, who are the number one doctors to deal with this? Changes in his insurance, goes, flies to the West Coast to meet with one of them, New York to meet with another one, does a who knows how many hundreds of dollars worth of uh, Skyping with a guy that wasn't practicing anymore but had written books on it. Uh, whatever it takes because he was looking for the worthy physician because he wanted to live longer and have a higher quality of life. Who is worthy? We're talking about life and death is how he was thinking. Well, in this case, who is worthy to promote and protect a message of eternal life and death? The Apostle Paul doesn't say, well, I am. The implied answer seems to be nobody is. You, 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 you can't find one. But we've got super apostles in Corinth who are qualified because of things they've felt, because of things they've seen, and because of things they've experienced. He talks about super apostles. We've seen it. We'll see it in the future. They are worthy. The Apostle Paul says, who's worthy of that? Nobody. And, and, and let's remember, that's how we need to think. We are not worthy to proclaim such good news of salvation. And as soon as we are a worthy church and we're worthy people, then we've totally lost sight of the whole deal. Who is worthy of such a thing? No one has enough letters behind their name to be worthy. And, but in chapter 3, look down there with me if you would. In chapter 3, verse 5, he's going to say, not that we are sufficient or worthy in ourselves, to claim anything is coming from us. But our sufficiency, our worthiness is from God who has made us worthy. He has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Even there, he uses minister, he uses the word servant. So he's made us worthy, and how has he made us worthy? Because we're great. God helped us. God helped us, and we achieved greatness. Give the Lord a hand, like Benny Hinn says. No, let's not do that. No, it's not that He made us worthy. Yeah, He made us worthy to be, chapter 3, servants. Yeah, we serve. We just give people the gospel that's not ourselves. In chapter 4, verse 5, we don't preach ourselves. I'm worthy because God made me worthy. God. We're not worthy. We're servants. But then, therefore, we're worthy to be ministers, servants of a new covenant a better covenant, fulfillment in Christ, Christ at the centerpiece. It's, it's awesome. It's grand. Verse 17 then says, For we, we who preach the true gospel of salvation in Christ alone, is where he's going in chapter 3, and chapter 4, and chapter 5. For we, unlike the phony super apostles, for we are not like so many peddlers of God's word. Some have even translated the, 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 the many as the crowd. Those guys. But maybe we should just leave it as many. We're not like that. When we do this, we are not like that. Those who are either in it for the money or who are in it for dishonesty. He might be using it literally, um, peddlers as they're, they're, they're money makers, or he might be using it figuratively as they're, they're just known as those kinds of people. 
those who would be working in the marketplace. First century, uh, common for those who would be there. Even Here's a quote from outside of the Bible. Philosophers sell their knowledge like the wine merchants. He's using it in a similar way. They, they sell their, their philosophies like wine merchants, wine merchants who are known uh, for cutting the wine and adding water, uh, but selling it as if it's pure. Okay? We, we, in our day, we would say used car salesmen, right? And you know what I mean. And so, some of you might even sell used cars. Most everyone in this room has bought a used car. I know we've had church members who used to be used car salesmen. And they got saved and came to Jesus and repented. <laughs> But he's using it in that sense. There's nothing wrong with selling cars, nothing wrong with selling used cars, but there is such a reputation that we talk about used car salesmen. And everybody knows what we mean. And he's saying, you know what? In preaching the gospel straight up, following the script, God is pleased and it makes us different from the used car salesmen preachers. And he says there are many of them and we're not like them. They're busy preaching themselves, trying to get fame, trying to get fortune, trying to make a buck. We're different from them. Verse 17 goes on to say, but as men of sincerity, you get what you see. You get what you see. But men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. And that is a great, great way for us to wrap this up because men of sincerity, I'm not doctoring it up, I'm not adding to, I'm not taking it away, I'm just echoing. I'm just giving it to you straight up, okay? Uh, As commissioned by God, this is what God has called us to do, is preach Christ, not ourselves. And not only that, it's in the sight of God. So God is watching, we're accountable, this isn't in secret. God be my judge kind of thing. We speak in Christ. And I love that again because we speak united to Christ. So what we know about Christ, we say about Christ. It's as if Christ himself were saying the message. So whatever he says about himself, I say about him. So not only am I united to him spiritually by faith, but in my preaching, I'm in Christ. Think of it that way. When you tell people the gospel, when you talk to people about God, you're doing so, or you should be, in Christ, as your representative, but also you're just saying what he says about himself because we're Christians. Doesn't it seem strange to think anything else? It seems so strange. But that gets hard sometimes when, you know, it's not so popular and it's hard to pay the bills. It's not so popular and maybe it's going to lead to your relationship breaking up. It's hard. And and now I want to talk about Christ, but I'm not talking about Christ in Christ. I'm giving you some other doctored up version. Like a used car salesman, because you want to get the sale. You just can't do that. It doesn't work. It doesn't last. We speak in Christ. I love what Richard Sibbs said on CNN last week. You know, Richard Sibbs wrote in the 1500s um, in his little book called The Bruised Reed. Some of you have read that. Let us not look so much at who our enemies are 
as at who our judge and captain is. He is always leading the triumphant procession. He's our captain, and so we're, in, we're with him. Okay, I'll read the whole quote this time, sorry. I don't, I don't want to preach Richard Sibbs. Let us not look so much at who our enemies are as at who our judge and captain is, nor at what they threaten, but at what he promises. We have more for us than against us. We have more for us in Christ than against us. We have more for us than against us. He always, everywhere, leads us in triumph. So, look to Him and speak truthfully of Him and you will be a confident person no matter what happens. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for time in 2 Corinthians. Thank you even for these conflicts that came about so many years ago so that we might have a better understanding of what it means to be united to Christ by faith, that we might have a better understanding of what it means to have eternal life in Christ. And certainly help us as a local church, help us as a local church to stick to the script, to preach Christ and to preach Christ faithfully and not ourselves. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.